Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from another overcast day here in south-central British Columbia. In today's episode, we embark upon a new direction of inquiry, taking a deep dive into the politics, policies, persuasions, and the myriad of consequences of big oil's competitive and ruthless quest for oil and regional dominance. We will examine the history of oil, Europe's history in the Middle East prior to World War I, and the evolution and introduction of other world players leading up to World War II and right up to present-day events. Get situated, get comfortable, and strap in for what I assure you will be a very interesting and provocative journey. Joining us today is investigative journalist and author and lawyer, Charlotte Dennett. Miss Dennett was born in Beirut, Lebanon, where her mother worked as an English teacher and her father, Daniel Dennett, worked as an intelligence officer for the then Central Intelligence Group, the predecessor to the CIA. In 1947, Mr. Dennett was tragically killed in a suspicious plane crash in Ethiopia that up until today remains clouded in mystery and official silence. Although she grew up in Massachusetts, Mrs. Dennett later returned to Lebanon with her mother and completed her last two years of high school in Beirut. She, obtained, she returned to the U.S. to get her B.A. at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, and went on to maintain a master's degree in art history at Post Pius XII's Institute in Flores, Italy. She then returned to Beirut to become a journalist, first as a roving correspondent with the weekly English-language feature magazine The Middle East Sketch, and later as a reporter for the Beirut Daily Star. Her journalistic work took her beyond Lebanon to Syria, Jordan, Israel, Iran, Iraq, Dubai, Kuwait, and Oman, and she became fascinated with the impact of modernization on women's lives in those countries. Mrs. Dennett is also the author of a number of books, including Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, and her latest book, Follow the Pipelines, which we'll be focusing on today. Mrs. Dennett has also been a lawyer since 1997, practicing as a sole practitioner in northern Vermont with an emphasis on family law, personal injury, and consumer fraud cases. Ms. Dennett, it's an honor to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for that, that comprehensive uh, rundown of my professional life. I'm Ms. Dennett. Not okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ms. Dennett. So no, that's... no problem. Married to Gerard Colby, great author and mentor and investigative journalist. Yes, fantastic. Who who we understand is a sore back today. Yes. <laughs> so let's begin today, if we may, by you describing your motivations as a young woman to leave America for Beirut and become uh, this adventurous journalist. Oh, it started actually when I was just 16 years old. And... Um, I was I was born in Beirut, but after my father's death, when I was just an infant, uh, the family moved to Winchester, Massachusetts, where I grew up. So when I was 16, my mother said she missed Beirut and would I like to go back with her? And I said, wow, take me there. I, I was really intrigued. Uh, there's another backstory to that, but there's so much to cover. So anyway, I went. Uh, and spent my last two high school years at the American Community School. So that was that was the first um, really profound experience. I felt like living in Beirut was such an education and traveling all over, much more than you even get in school. You get to know the people and the places and the customs. And then uh, my mother died uh, after 72. Um, well, I have to say, so I graduated from high school, then I went to college, master's degree, and in 72, uh, my mother died. And so I thought, well, where do I go now? And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to Beirut. I, wanted, I was in Florence, Italy, having 
gotten my master's degree there in art history of all things. And uh, it just seemed like Beirut beckoned. And so I was there uh, for, for a few years, really at the peak of, of Beirut's beauty before uh, the Civil War. And I, I started as a, um, as a writer on uh, art and architecture, but rapidly started changing into uh, covering the political events of the area. And, and I got to travel all over the Middle East for this magazine, English language, that sort of modeled itself after a time or Newsweek, but it focused on the Middle East, English language. And I, I was sent to all these places like Abu Dhabi, which no one had ever heard of at that time, and Dubai. And uh, they were just emerging out of the desert. And now they're like, oh my God, they're super oil capitals, skyscrapers and so on. But when I was there, they, they were just beginning to deal with the impact of oil on their own societies because they were basically, you know, desert nomads. And, and suddenly these big companies come in and exploit their oil. It had a huge influence and impact on them because most of the women, you know, they still uh, dressed in the abaya and totally covered up, but their daughters wanted, wanted more. They wanted Western influence. So anyway, that was another phenomenal experience and when we then i went into the beirut daily star which is an english language magazine uh, i started to uh, uh, get very interested in the conflict uh, with the palestinians uh, who, uh, many of them had um, come to lebanon as refugees and they were getting quite quite powerful actually uh, arafat the leader of the palestine liberation organization was there and uh, but their presence ultimately was not appreciated, uh, and a civil war developed, and not by everybody in in Lebanon, but certainly by certain factions, um, wanted them out. And I would say that was the Christian Maronites who were pretty much a, a lot uh, allied with Israel. So right before the civil war happened, uh, I was going out to actually just visit a friend near the airport. And suddenly I see these tanks rolling down the road and I ran out to cover in a school was on my belly for about eight hours recording this fighting going on, which I wasn't really sure who was fighting whom. And this guy who had seen me there, he had come to rescue his niece. He came back and he said, look, there's, there's nobody here, but pretty soon you don't know who's going to come into this school. Uh, I suggest you leave with me. So I did. And uh, he motioned to his car and we ran for it. And I got shot at, but obviously they missed. And when that happens, that sort of has an impression on you. Absolutely. And, and I know that story, but I don't know how deep you want to go. So I survived. Let's put it that way. And, and how old were you at the time? Well, at that time I was in my early 20s. Wow, so, I mean that's it, it's interesting. I mean that's that's quite a profound experience for for a young woman, especially having grown up in the in the comforts of uh, Massachusetts and then being thrust into a situation like that. And I mean the, the interesting from your perspective as seeing this transformation of a, a Bedouin nomadic culture um, in the Middle East into you know even the, the rise of uh, uh, Dubai and you know these skyscrapers emerging from the desert like mushrooms all over the place. Yeah, that it, it was profound. 
and but I but I had an introduction to the area early as a journalist that a lot of other journalists they had not I mean from mainstream media they barely had ever heard of Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Omar, Qatar, all these Gulf countries, and the fact is that when you're there you know right away, right away that oil is totally influencing their society and I wrote about it in the Middle East sketch. And so that stays with you. Now, the other thing that stayed with me was that the more I traveled, the more I started to think, you know, I'm tracing the footsteps of my father. He was the, he was the first master spy for the United States uh, in the area. He was, he was trained in European history and Islamic history, uh, which was perfect for them because there were a lot of European colonial influence but America was a rising power. And I, uh, I left Lebanon when the Civil War was just beginning. I thought I'd sit it out for a while and turned it out for 15 years or so. Uh, but during that time, I started to investigate what was my father doing uh, immediately before the plane crash that killed him. And uh, that was an experience, another deep dive um, the, the main clue was that his last mission was to determine the route of the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. Uh, this was in his job in 1944 when he was sent over there, and I got this from a declassified document, um, was, quote-unquote, to protect the uh, Saudi oil at all costs. That really struck me. And the other thing is, where is the terminal point of this pipeline taking Saudi oil to Europe. Well, the, there were two uh, possible points. One of them was Lebanon. The other one was Palestine. It had not become Israel yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, his job was to go over to Saudi Arabia and try to figure out what the safest route for the pipeline was. That that was later in 47. He, he tried to, uh, he, he wrote about it in his last report, which was a huge clue to me. Uh, that there was a problem, and the main problem, believe it or not, was Syria. Syria was nationalistic at the time, anti-Zionist, uh, and they did not want the pipeline to traverse or transit through Syria and end up in Palestine. And so my father learned that uh, the uh, tap line company executives were really very annoyed about this. You know, what? It couldn't go forward until it got uh, serious. Okay, so what ultimately happened, uh, and this was after my father's death, the CIA pulled off its first coup. This was before the coup in, in uh, Iran uh, in 52. Uh, this was in 49, and they overthrew the uh, President Kuwatli, who had been an elected president of Syria. They, they overthrew him in a coup and installed a uh, police chief who uh, was very amenable to the pi pipeline passing through Syria. And um, so that was hunky-dory. Ultimately, uh, the pipeline ended up in southern Lebanon, which is very close to, the, to uh, Palestine. And I came to conclude, and this is after many years of research, uh, looking into the role of pipelines in conflict, uh, that... Um, Many of these conflicts, which we can go into, uh, involve sending in troops to protect the pipeline route and spies. And um, 
So while I determined that the troops were usually along the routes of the pipeline or the planned routes, and this happened in Iraq, it happened in, um, in um, where, well, Syria to agree, but it very visually in Afghanistan. Uh, but when I started to think about what's protecting tap line, um, which runs from Syria and ends up in Lebanon, well, then I started to look, there's no troops that were there. And then I started to look at Israel and I realized it wasn't Israeli troops. It was Israel itself. Israel, highly militarized, was there to protect American oil interests in the Middle East. And it was, it was a, you know, a, a home for European Jews who had survived the horrendous Holocaust. Uh, but I even dug in deeper uh, to figure out when was, um, oh, there was, I'm sorry, I have to correct myself. There was, there was an incredible map in the New York Times, which I discovered March 2nd, 1947. And it was all about, this, this is all about this pipeline that two weeks later, my, my father's dead, you know, but he was in Saudi Arabia when this article came out and it talked about the huge implications of an American uh, exclusive concession in Saudi Arabia, uh, building this pipeline and how different countries were reacting to it. And, and the, the, the British were nervous about it because they had established a, uh, a strong presence in the Middle East, almost a monopoly. But the French were also nervous about it. Um, it. It signaled America becoming a world power, and it is Saudi oil that turned America into world power. It was able to um, send Saudi oil to Europe, and um, that way it was able to uh, wean Europe's dependence on uh, coal and communist-run coal unions. Interesting. Trying to wean away from it. This has ramifications that goes all the way up to the present and what's going on in Ukraine and the, and the US and the Europeans trying to get Europe to be less dependent on um, Russian oil. So there's a continuum all the way through for me from the 40s all the way up to now and learning about pipeline politics and and how they have a huge impact on what happens uh, in that in that part of the world. I mean, because most people, you know, they think, all right, there's oil in the Middle East, and there's probably these conflicts have something to do with oil, but there's certain central central facts that are missing, and and one of them is, okay, you've you've found the oil. Now what you got to do? You got to distribute it. It's no good if it just sits in the ground. Well, how do you distribute it? Through what countries? What countries are going to be hostile? Hostile, like how they used to look at the um, the Indians in the U.S. Well, what people are going to be hostile to this pipeline, and who's going to be friendly, and what can we do to make them friendly? That was part of my father's work. It's a very long-winded answer. Sorry about that. No, no, that's great. It's it's uh, it's interesting. So, in when I was in high school, and the you know the the conflict with Yasser Arafat and, and the West Bank and Gaza was in full swing, uh, I remember doing quite a few uh, projects in school covering the current affairs. And upon reading your book, 
and your background information about what was really causing these conflicts. You know, obviously there was a territorial dispute, but a lot of it was also the fact that they were these pipelines moving through. And that was really the, the, the source of conflict. You know, different organizations were being backed by different players and never once uh, in any of the newspapers that I read, and of course, this is pre pre internet, so there 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 were there was only the newspapers to read on the on the subject matter. Uh, they never mentioned pipelines. They never mentioned oil. It was all just about the you know the politics of each of these. You know whether it was a, the PLA versus Israel or versus Lebanon and the different the different factions, Hezbollah and so forth. And never once it mentioned oil. And so when I was reading through your book, it was like, oh, well, this is the background straight out. It all makes sense. You know what? Yeah, right. Why? It was so interesting. So I think. Also, for 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 to under for the listeners to understand a bit more in the background, I think if we if we dial the 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 story of the great game of big oil back to actually the First World War, and you have some insight uh, in terms of perhaps why that conflict was started, uh, and let's start there because I think before we get to the emergence of the U.S. as a superpower, um, we need to we need to define why the British and why the French. Uh, and, uh, and and the Germans as well were you know they were battling for the same supremacy position and um, so if, if I'll, I'll let you take that over and if we can kind of get into some of those salient issues of World War One and World War Two uh, to bring us up to uh, almost the time when you were uh, you know the, the the Lebanese Civil War there's a, we need some more of that background there if you would please yeah well that's great I'm just I'm just so glad that you're interested in the history because that's how you solve problems. Just my introduction, in the course of writing about all these issues, I came across a uh, CNN interview with a forensic pathologist uh, who's often gives expertise in, in criminal matters in the court. And he said that facts in isolation uh, mm. just lead to confusion. Whereas facts put into context allows you to get at the cause. And it's absolutely true. If you want to understand the Middle East, man, and I had to understand it more. I have kept going back and back and back. Well, when did this happen? And so we get to World War One. No, you gotta go before World War One. You gotta to go to nineteen eleven when Winston Churchill, who was then the first Lord of the Admiralty, uh realized that to remain a, a a superpower, an imperial power in the Middle East, he had to convert the British Navy's reliance on coal for its fuel to oil. And this posed a dilemma because Britain had lots of coal, but very, very little if no oil. So why did he want to convert? Because oil was more efficient and it was cheaper and it made the, the boats run faster, so to speak. So when he when he made this decision, he said he he realized that Britain would have to fight on a sea of troubles, and indeed it did, and and so its first target to get oil was Iraq. It was known to have lots of oil. Oil used to bubble up from the surface of the desert, and so getting the oil of Iraq was a quote-unquote first-class war aim, which in most history books gets very much ignored. World War I is presented as mostly a war over Europe, uh, but um, the, the, the very central part of it was Britain's um, 
penetration of the Middle East uh, to defeat the, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire that then controlled the Middle East. The one thing people have heard about is Lawrence of Arabia. He was very key in that battle. He, he got the Arabs to side with the Brits to fight the Turks and get them out of the Middle East. And that's something the Arabs have never forgotten that, you know, they shed their blood for the British to do this. And ultimately they get betrayed, one of the first big betrayals. But anyway, getting back. So oil was the great prize. So how to ship it, where to ship it to. So I started to look at that and suddenly I realized, well, wait a minute, 1917 is the Balfour Declaration, a very important document used over and over again to show that the British approved the establishment of a Jewish home in Palestine. And what, what doesn't get told that much is, what is this Balfour Declaration? Actually, it's just a letter. It's a letter from the Foreign Secretary Balfour to uh, Lord Walter Rothschild of the Rothschild family, which was not only a huge banking institution, they were scenes of, of the oil industry uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I mean, they were on the level of Rockefeller. So consider if they're gonna have this colony, basically established in Palestine, uh, let, let's, uh, let's have it with European Jews who are gonna be more comfortable with the West than they are with Muslims. And so, and I was able to find a connection. It's, it's the Israelis are now beginning to get into declassified documents themselves. And it's very clear that running a pipeline from Iraq to Palestine was the plan. And it was, it was achieved in the 1930s. Uh, the Iraq Petroleum uh, Company, uh, which was mostly British, but also French controlled. The US had a, a minor interest in it, which allowed the US to get their foot in the Middle East door. Uh, and um, then you had the pipeline ran to, uh, on the Northern part, it ran to Lebanon. That was French control. The Southern part of the pipeline ran to Haifa. And then not long afterwards, um, the, the state of Israel becomes established in 1948. Um, and so that was one aspect. Then the other aspect of the war that I, the beginnings of the war that I discovered was a railroad, which in great game terms is sort of the predecessor to pipelines as being very essential. Um, to the great game, to these these battles for territory, and um, and the battles became very sharp when when it was realized how important oil was to fueling the military, which is another thing that's seldom told. You know, when I when I talk to people like why is oil important, they talk about industry and gasoline and and so on, but they hardly ever talk about the central fact: oil is the fuel of the military. And anyone who aspires to be a great power needs to get oil. So right prior to uh, World War I, uh, the Germans were working with the Turks very actively uh, to set up a railroad that would run from Berlin all the way to Baghdad. And it was its main objective was to get the oil of Iraq uh, and uh, 
was certainly to get into that territory. And the deal was that um, in exchange for building this railroad, uh, the, the Turks granted Germany oil rights on either side of the railroad. Well, when the British found out about that, they were totally alarmed. They had, you know, seized oil of Iraq. They, um, they already had their first big oil coup in Iran, and they did not like at all the fact that the Germans were advancing into the Middle East towards their holdings. And so, um, and they particularly wanted to prevent it from going through, guess where, Serbia. That they just wanted to block this. So um, there are now historians who are saying that the Berlin to Baghdad railroad is, is most definitely a factor in causing World War One. And you know, the main people who wanted to prevent the Germans and the Turks from getting into that area what were the British. Um, so there's there's another factor. Uh, and then we jump up shall I jump up to World War II, um, <clears throat> once again, not often talked about, but the, uh, the Saudi oil was deemed so important that it had to be, quote, protected at all costs, which is what my father wrote in his, um, in his, what is called an analysis of work. He was sent there uh, in early 44. So the, the war was almost over. And I, I was trying to figure out what his duties were. And I, I sued the CIA to find out through the Freedom of Information Act. And I, I, I got a lot of documents, mostly routine travel stuff, but I got this gem that was called Analysis of Work. And it was written by my father. And he sort of wrote back what his duties were. And that's what protecting the oil, also very interesting, protect American airspace. Because at this time, um, American aviation was advancing. And uh, there were even battles for air routes. And that's how I found out that the British not only were very British, and I should say the Soviet Union as well. British wanting to hold on to its empire, Soviet wanting to build its empire. Um, and so they were watching oil developments all over the all over the Middle East primarily, and that's where uh, my father, his last mission, was to Ethiopia, because not only had the U.S. established an exclusive concession in Saudi Arabia, much to the angst of its former European allies, but it also gotten a uh, exclusive concession in Ethiopia. And uh, so my father boarded this plane, uh, the U.S. American Petroleum Attaché based in Cairo was on the plane. There was another uh, person who uh, was protecting navigational and radio equipment, which was on the plane. And the whole idea is that they were going to set up Ethiopian Airlines and it was going to be run by, um, it's going to be owned by the Ethiopians, but it was going to be basically run by American experts uh, uh, associated with TWA. And so I get into that whole battle and the Brits, the Brits 
did not want this to happen. The Soviets were, were also very concerned. So I, uh, I explore that aspect. And, uh, and let me just, let me just, let me just jump in there, uh, Ms. Dennett. The the major overarching reason for those air control spaces, or, the, or was air reconnaissance for pipeline routes and oil exploration. Is that correct? As opposed to simply like passport or a passenger transportation and this type or of thing. I, yeah, you 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 got it. That's that's true. That's what I discovered. Like on the plane that crashed, it was an aerial camera, and uh, I found you know communiques very concerned. We got to get. You know, this camera's been smashed to pieces. We've got to get a new one. And, and um, yeah, I mean, that indicates that one of the things that plane was doing was uh, looking for routes for pipelines. And, uh, and not only that, but sending communication equipment to, uh, to Addis Ababa to set up an American airlines. And, and the British were, were just beside themselves on that because they had had total control over Ethiopia. They controlled the roads, the railroads, the airspace, everything. And suddenly here are these Americans, you know, barging in again. So what I find, I mean, I just found it very interesting. The great game is, is about competition uh, between former allies during World War II, all of them, Soviets, the, the the French and the Americans they all want to get control of the oil, and and particularly you may find this interesting, and I think it may be relevant to Canada and also Latin America. You know, <clears throat> my my previous book is is about uh, oil in Latin America, and which helped me an, analyze even more. I will be done the conquest of the Amazon subtitle. Nelson Rockefeller and evangelism in the age of oil. So what I found out with my husband, Jerry, uh, is that the oil, um, there was, it, Nelson Rockefeller, a side that no, most people don't know of, was intent on uh, building huge American business enterprises in, in Latin America. You know, get rid of the Germans, get the Americans in there, take over all aspects of society and so on. But he also had, quote, a shining dream, end quote, for the, for the conquest of the Amazon. And his goal was uh, to get oil uh, out of the Amazon. And, you know, the Amazon is not only in Brazil, it's also in Peru and Ecuador. So uh, then there were huge uh, oil in Venezuela. So get control of the oil. But what he, what he ended up doing the U.S. ended up doing is capping the oil. The reason is <laughs> they were more worried about getting the oil of the Middle East. And when you look on the map of the Middle East, you'll see the great bear hovering over everything, Soviet Union. So they decided we got to get the oil first, get it out of the Middle East, and then we'll come back, you know, later on when, when we need it. So, okay. so okay. yeah. So, um, <laughs> Obviously, that that radio equipment that uh, was coming in on that plane that your father was on and, and tragically lost his life on, one could imagine that that wasn't only to be communicating amongst their own planes, that that could have been also been used to listen to the communiques coming out of the British uh, planes flying in the area to intercept their reconnaissance, I would imagine, uh, which which kind of leads into these these different uh, layers and different entities which are covert 
that are assisting the great game uh, players, which is, you know, uh, overtly more the, the CSS, CIA, MI5, MI6. But there's also a series of uh, missionary organizations, the airlines, all these other layers that are either indirectly or directly assisting in this reconnaissance. Uh, do you want to touch base on that for us? Well, yes. Uh, what I discovered in tracking Rockefeller influence in Latin America, uh, and it took many years to do, I might add, uh, man, once you climb to the top of the mountain and you look at the world from the vantage point of the most powerful oil family of the 20th century, the, the view is fantastic. Um, I mean, you start seeing all these interlocking relationships of people carrying out the the demands of empire. They don't they don't even know they're doing it. I mean, this is this is the, the missionaries, for instance. Yeah, we found out that <coughs> that there was uh, in Rock, Rockefeller and U.S. influence on on using missionaries. Well, it makes absolute sense. That's what they did in the West, in 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 conquering the West. They sent out the missionaries first. They're like they're like scouts, uh, and uh, their job is to pacify the indigenous people, and uh, so that when there are incursions of oil crews, or ranchers, or agribusiness trucks, and they come onto indigenous areas, they need to know if they're going to be friendly or hostile. That's where intelligence comes in, but that's also where missionaries come in, because they think they're doing God's work by saving indigenous souls, and and they're very sophisticated. Uh, and by the way, this group, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which sounds very scientific and very secular, but is actually evangelical, uh, back in the U.S., they're called the Wycliffe Bible Translators. And what they do is they convince these Catholic countries to invite them into Latin America to uh, translate the Bible uh, into indigenous languages. So they, the in, indigenous people can read and write, know their language. But then the underlying thing is what they use is the New Testament for teaching them their language. And the, the end result is to get the indigenous people to be better integrated into society. They, from learning their own language, they can learn Spanish. This is all the goal. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to develop the oil. And the various countries in Latin America agreed to doing this because no, they needed to develop all the oil and no one else had the, had the um, guts really to go into this forests and confront indigenous people and not know what will happen. Some of them got killed and it became very famous. Now they're all over the world. They're in Africa. They're in Southeast Asia. I mean, we, Jerry and I wrote this massive, as a thousand page book, uh, hoping that it would have UN investigations on the genocide of indigenous people, which never happened, of course. No. But it, it was a, it was a huge, uh, a huge eye-opener for me when I started to apply the lessons uh, that I learned from investigating Rockefeller in the Middle East and then going, I mean, in Latin America and then taking it, this knowledge uh, to the Middle East. And just as you say, it's, it's my goodness, you have, <clears throat> well, you have the spies, 
okay? And uh, then you have the missionaries, and you have anthropologists. Uh, some many anthropologists in Latin America were uh, very much opposed to what was going on, and they actually blew the whistle on how these missionaries were being used by you know the CIA and the oil companies. But um, you know, ultimately, because these people are powerful now. In fact, we warned about the growth of evangelical missionaries in Latin America. We warned people in the in the early 1990s that they were they were a force to be reckoned with. And now look what we have in the United States. You know, the former vice president of the United States is an evangelical, and the evangelicals are a huge uh, factor uh, behind uh, Trump and his people. So. There, that's another thing we learned. But just as you say, there are many elements. Uh, there are, um, you know, USAID, uh, which is part of empire building. This is, you know, it, it comes off as giving aid to different groups. But the whole idea is, is soft side counterinsurgency uh, to win over hearts and minds. Um, and so they're very active on the ground in, in many countries right now. And you know, Africa is a huge area of exploration that's going on, and the great game is in full throttle there. Mm. You know, the, the Americans are there. They've set up huge uh, AFRICOM bases. And uh, <clears throat> one thing that I tell people that I learned, which is very easy, if, if you see a given really awful sustained conflict in any given area, just type the name of the country and then oil. Pythons. and more often than not, you're gonna you're gonna see what's really going on. It's still hidden. It's still hidden, except when we get to Ukraine. With Ukraine, it's so obvious they can't hide it anymore. Well, let's 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 leave that one for later on in the segment here, because that, that uh, yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. Um, and I, it, from reading your book, I think it's quite clear that the former Cold War that we had with the Soviet Union and all the strife and the turmoil surrounding that, including all the strife and turmoil in the Middle East, uh, has been based on this struggle for energy and control and dominance of uh, the great game of oil. Is is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, the trillions and trillions of dollars that were spent in the nuclear armaments and the arms race through the 80s and, and so forth, that's all based on this uh, drive for supremacy of oil control. Absolutely. Coming back. Oh, interesting. If, if you want to be a superpower and you have a military, it's got to run on oil. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. And, and this word empire um, that you mentioned, um, and it's seldom used by the U.S. media these days. Um, what, what, uh, what springs to mind when you hear that word in relation to this subject? The, I call it the exigencies of empire. In other words, um, and it also goes to the nature of capitalism itself. Um, not, not to say that in, before there was capital capitalism there were there were empires being built and later destroyed or disintegrating but in the modern world what what uh capitalism is based on is competition and it you you constantly have to outcompete your competitors um and looking for ways to do that but there's also <laughs> 
the need for new markets because what happens with capitalism is that uh, industries are, are constantly uh, evolving and modernizing and in the process uh, <clears throat> they're creating through automation for instance more and more products and they have to find markets and that extends through everything through through manufacturing and finance and well in modernizing your military it's all part of the, the same phenomenon so uh empire An another thing that i found here we go again with pipelines when i was researching um uh what was going on in saudi arabia in 1947 at the time of my father's death and i found this great quote by a, a, a state department official who said that um pipelines are arteries of empire isn't that interesting? Yeah. And and then he said, and and that's what tap line, the Trans Arabian Pipeline, was for the United States. It was the arteries of the American Empire, which was just about to take off in full. And that that was uh, Ernest Latham, the uh, the American that's, that's diplomat. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That, that quote really stood out to me as uh, something very important, and it really puts into perspective uh, the entirety of the uh, situation there. So you, you, we, we covered the um, Rockefeller's um, utilization of missionaries in the Amazon uh, just now. Um, how did the manipulation of the God-fearing fundamentalists uh, in the Middle East and, and the, the Islamic fundamentalist movement, uh, how was that either manipulated or how, how did that play into fracturing the Middle East into these various uh, competing interests? Well, one of the, one of the individuals who was on top of that was big new Brzezinski. Mm, what was the big new? Yeah. The, the technocrat. Yeah, the technocrat. Yeah, well, people identify him as a national security advisor to Jimmy Carter, but he was much more than that. Uh, he helped form the Trilateral Commission with David Rockefeller, uh, right out of Rockefeller's home in Terrytown, New York, in what, 1973, I believe. Mm. So, yeah. 273 uh and, and that was a way of bringing in the europeans and the japanese with sort of the american dream of uh bringing stability to the world uh all stability with with america still having the primary advantage as a superpower um so zabig was very knowledgeable about what these dreams of of actually conquest, world conquest. They wouldn't call it that, but that's what it was. Uh, with, you know, the great leader in his view of um, finance, that is David Rockefeller, the head of the head of Chase Manhattan Bank, who, which keeps getting set up in these areas that are basically conquered, but that is not through colonial direct rule they started using this idea of indirect rule which is uh, and this gave them an edge over french and the british you know you don't go in there and 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 just set up your 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 government uh in a in a colonial way which is using the military and the police to occupy these countries uh, you become more sophisticated. So indirect rule is that you pace out whoever's running for president 
and you you know invite them down to uh, Wall Street for to see where they stand, uh, and are they pro-American? And and this is the model that is used. And so good old Zabig um, also used the idea of using indigenous people. And the the most uh, salient example of that is Afghanistan. That uh, that is uh, he was instrumental in um, defeating the Soviet Union in in Afghanistan by funding jihadists, these these Muslim jihadists, um, who who were happy to oblige and learned a great deal about insurgencies and and fighting bringing about regime change. Uh, so this model has been used ever since. Uh, and, you know, my area is the Middle East, of course, but people should apply it to different parts of the world. Some people say that as thy will be done, that is, um, what is it? A, um, I haven't got the right word here, but it, it's uh, a, the model for conquest. Uh, if you understand by reading that book, then you understand how it works all over the world. And then I, I in a way, sort of simplified the, con the, the concept and focused it on the Middle East. And that's what they're doing. As we all know, uh, the Taliban, there's a classic example in Afghanistan. The Taliban were courted by the neoconservatives with uh, Dick Cheney, um, very much involved and others uh, that they, they developed in, I think it was 1997, this project for a new American century. And the, and the whole idea is they wanted to make America the only superpower uh, and it was gonna conquer the world, quite frankly. And so um, they actually allied with Brzezinski. This was interesting too, because Brzezinski represents the most sophisticated rulers uh, in their approach to conquest. And oftentimes it, it's, it's also through economics and it's through the World Bank and extending loans, that's the pattern, rather than just clobbering people. So when, when the war in Afghanistan happened and Iraq, um, that was uh, by Bush that struck me as a less sophisticated way of getting what they had all wanted, which was to conquer the Middle East and Central Asia and Eurasia. Uh, and there's, a, there's this one great quote um, <clears throat> that the plan was to conquer seven countries in, in five years, which it, it's still in process. But um, that was the neocon objective, but I, but I, I didn't see Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, you know, uh, preventing it from happening. He, he was in on it as well. So, And that, that list of seven countries, uh, how many are still yet to be conquered? Because I believe that uh, on that list, you know, Libya has been conquered. Uh, you know, many of, those, many of those nations have been conquered already at this point. If, if you'll hold on for just a second. Sorry about that phone. Ring. Sure, that's no problem. Uh, and, and of course, also within that uh, group of Z uh, Zbigniew, Brzezinski, and Rockefeller, uh, you missed Henry Kissinger, or, or the old uh, oh, the yeah. old goat. And Absolutely. of course, it, it. 
interesting to note that since the Jimmy Carter um, administration, the Trilateral Commission has featured, or members of the Trilateral Commission have featured very heavily in all administrations since then, um, over the years, including the Clinton administration and uh, even up until the Obama years. So the yeah. the th- those. Um, you know, the, those technocrats are really running the show. And uh, yes, I mean, they, as you suggest, they've they've evolved from this overt colonialism to a much more um, uh, different form of subjugation and probably even more pervasive than, you know, simply going in there with a the, the frontal assault. Yep, you, you put it very well. And I was just looking for my list of seven countries and I haven't had it on the top of my head, but they, they certainly included Iraq. I think Syria is in there as well. Syria is in there. Um, Somalia, I believe. Um, okay, yes. Anyway, read the book. You'll see it. I'm sorry. I can't. thought I had the link to it, but I don't. So, yes. Yes. You, you, you've got it down. I mean, look, look what's happening. Well, I'm skipping over to, to Ukraine again, but it's economic yeah, let's, pressure. Yeah. It's economic pressure that they have used more than anything else. Absolutely. So the the would you then consider that the 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 war that the the, the uh, I guess it was the the Dick Cheney Bush war on terrorism and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan uh you know although in the public's eye it was painted as uh, the uh, revenge and a desire to bring the perpetrators to justice um but really this had entirely other motivations which you know again are the conquest of oil and the the influence in that region would that be correct? Yes, yes, that that would be correct. I I wrote a piece uh, when the when these in, invasions were happening in the early two thousands. I wrote a piece called "The War on Terror and the Great Game for Oil: How the Media Missed the Context." I wrote that for a book called uh, "Into the Buzzsaw: Leading Journalists Expose the Myth of the Free Press," edited by Christina Borgeson, and and uh, she. I was really upset about how the United States just presents one side of the story. It's been this way all my life, watching oh. how how they show the Middle East. It, they they just only their propaganda is just more sophisticated than the Russians. <laughs> Okay. I, I was I was waiting for that to come out. I mean, that's and that's essentially journalism has morphed into you know certainly you would be excused from that uh, classification, but by and large, journalists have abdicated their responsibility and time honored profession to simply become propagandists of uh, these. You know, and I would also say that the media corporations are owned by the same people that are running the show in terms of the oil, and you know, the, all all roads lead back to these technocrats at the top of the pyramid that are uh, directing their will globally yeah I, I find it really sad it's totally sad to see but that's the truth yeah. you know if you think, if you want to be an investigative journalist um you, you're going to suffer the consequences that's what that's what into the buzzsaw reveals yeah. and yeah. uh christina went on to to write a, another book about uh how the media just totally missed the story of Iraq. They didn't even know why, why we were really in there. And, um, you know, so, was, so what wasn't, I it, done wasn't was, it weapons of mass destruction that uh, yeah, right. Saddam Hussein had? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I thought that was the problem. Was, well, he, he, this, is, this is another interesting finding about the uh, war in Iraq. Um, I found out that, that um, B- 
Bibi Netanyahu, then the finance minister, uh, but very powerful in Israel. He wanted to reopen one of those pipelines uh, that had been built in the 30s, uh, connecting the oil of Iraq to Haifa, now Israel. His, his dream was to reopen it. And, and he even blurted this out. So the press caught it, that soon the oil will be flowing to Israel. And the scheme was to get an uh, a Iraqi exile named Ahmed Chalabi uh, to, to replace Saddam Hussein. It would be the regime change. Then they'd get this guy in, in power. And he was pro-Israel. And so he had no problem with uh, the Iraqi oil flowing to Israel. I mean, this is like a repeat of the Syrian civil war. I mean, the Syrian uh, regime change in uh, 1949. Um, you know, get rid of the, the nationalists or put in our own guy, safeguard the pipeline. And it didn't happen. And the reason is that Ahmed Chalabi was the guy who came up with the concept of weapons of mass destruction. And once it was revealed that it was a fraud, well, that totally invalidated the plan to put Chalabi in power. I've just dug out, out of the book here that those seven countries that we talked about. Um, so there was a, it was a plan for um, uh, these, or sorry, so, so seven, seven countries in five years. And the countries are starting with Iraq, moving to Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finally Iran. So of that list, you know, I think there w there's been conflict in Sudan. I'm actually not sure how that's played out, but you know, we can imagine that the, the parties that wish to control it are now controlling it, and Iran remains the uh, the final outlier of that group. So uh, you know, yeah, God help yeah. us, God help us all, if that's still on the list for conquest. Oh my God! And and one of the things I also learned is that um, if you look at um, Gotta look at a map. There are like 12 maps in my book really help you understand uh, the geography and the nature of these conflicts. And if you look at it, for instance, now, <clears throat> Lebanon is totally shattered. It's, it's, it is a failed state, but you have to ask why. And uh, you know that there was that huge explosion in, in the port that just yes. devastated them. Uh, but they were already on the way downhill. And um, <clears throat> so Lebanon is just gasping for breath. But Syria to the north as well. Uh, it's been so decimated. And of course, all you hear in the American press is that it's all the fault of Assad government and Russia, uh, you know, bombing civilians and so on, not mentioning the role of uh, not only the U.S. troops got involved in Syria, but also their proxies, the Saudis, the Qataris, uh, and the Chechnyans, and so on. So um, when you think of what Israel's dream has been, other than reconnecting that pipeline, which still hasn't happened because there's too much conflict, and, and no bank will finance a pipeline if there's conflict, okay? So instead, Israel has this dream, nonetheless, of being an energy corridor all along the Eastern Mediterranean. And um, <clears throat> when you look at that energy corridor, the Eastern Mediterranean, immediately to the north is Lebanon and Syria. So I don't know 
they're, they're almost not in a position to resist this dream, except in Syria, because the Russians are still there. They're not going to let that happen. Um, but these countries have been flattened and totally destroyed. So now then you have to look at what's happening offshore. There's huge natural gas uh, deposits found in the Eastern Mediterranean So there, and oil. And so now you've got conflict over who's going to exploit them and what the boundaries are. And Gaza, Gaza had a right to that natural gas uh, offshore. And look at what happened. Um, some of the major assaults uh, against Gaza that happened uh, by Israel um, uh, was to prevent it from getting control over natural gas, which the Israeli government felt would uh, feed into terrorism. And that's, that that's was good, not the plan. That yeah. was not the plan. I mean, good cover story. Arafat said, uh, this, this is a blessing to us. We'll finally have economic independence. We can develop this. Well, it hasn't been allowed. It's been prevented. So, and the other thing that's happening, what Israel is doing is um, pursuing what's called an East Med pipeline. Uh, they're going to take their offshore uh, gas and oil and pipe it through through Syria. I mean, through um, Cyprus and then on through Europe. So that's the alternative plan. But there's been like conflict with Turkey. Turkey wants to lay claim to some of those deposits. So you just it just seems never ending. This, this great game for oil. We're going to have continued conflict until the military relies on other sources of energy and and so do you know everything else and industry and so on and of course climate change you know climate activists are very concerned because despite all these efforts to um, turn to alternative energy the great game continues big yeah, time yeah. and so the just- military increases Absolutely. So just 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 wanted to steer back to Afghanistan. And uh, after reading your piece there, I'd reached out to a couple of my uh, Canadian Armed Forces veteran colleagues, and they've all confirmed that uh, they were very aware that their locations and their actions were to support the uh, Tappy pipeline route. Um, you know, it was or certainly amongst the, the, the higher officers, they were absolutely aware of what their purpose was. They were under no illusions that they were doing anything else. Um, do you think that that pipeline will ever be constructed given, you know, the present situation over there? Well, I've been following it. And uh, before the U.S. withdrew, uh, the Taliban uh, was meeting with uh, U.S. officials and uh, and no, not only U.S., but Turkmenistan primarily. I mean, the U.S. is in there, but okay, they're meeting with the head of Turkmenistan, which is where the pipeline originates. It's called TAPI, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, TAPI. Those are the countries it is to traverse through to carry some of the great riches of the Caspian Sea. And um, so originally the Taliban were thought to be the greatest protectors of the pipeline route. Um, this was even before the invasion, and then relations soured between the U.S. and Taliban over 9-11 because the U.S. asked the Taliban to turn over Osama bin Laden 
And they said, well, we're not going to do that until you show us proof that he was involved in 9-11. The proof was not forthcoming. In go the troops. They, they defeat the Taliban, take over, that, try to control that pipeline route. Now, um, it has been built from Turkmenistan to the border of Afghanistan, but it has not proceeded for obvious reasons, all the conflict. But the Taliban are once again in negotiation with, with um, certainly Tur Turkmenistan, uh, and uh, the, and they have guaranteed that they they will protect the route of that pipeline, which must have been part of the whole withdrawal um, scenario that most people are not told about. You know, yeah, so U.S. forces will withdraw, but Taliban, you better damn well support that pipeline route. And I'm very glad to hear that you consulted with uh, Canadians about that. I, I have uh, been in touch with John Foster, who is an economist, he used to work with the World Bank, and he blew the whistle. It's in my book. Thank you, John Foster, when he discovered a quote from a, a State Department official named Butcher, uh, who said that um, the purpose one of the purposes of the war in Afghanistan was, quote unquote, so the oil can flow south. And that meant south to uh, through Pakistan to India and on. So it still hasn't been built, but it's still on the, the drawing board. Okay. And so given the, you know, billions of taxpayer dollars that were spent from all over the world uh, in Afghanistan, it's interesting to see that the American government pulled out uh, with essentially nothing to show for its uh, expenditure of capital and blood. Um, what are your thoughts there? Is there something else that we don't know uh, of that region or has they simply just uh, had enough and pulled out? Well, there's, there's also minerals. There are a lot of minerals that need to be exploited. And, and I think, you know, the main, the main issue right now is stability. You can't, accomplish any dream of investment, certainly in pipelines, unless you stabilize the area. And, and, and so the financial in institutions are waiting to see if that'll happen. Um, so that never gets discussed, never in the US. Um, and, and, and I think it's really sad. Uh, I do know that there are some um, veterans groups that have suddenly realized that they didn't know why they were being sent over, and now they have a pretty good idea of it. And if there's going to be any more troops sent in, there's really got to be an author authorization, a military force that has to be established. And um, But anyway, so John Foster revealed that, and I put it in the book about the Canadians. They were the primary people uh, after the Taliban were defeated in the, in the uh, early stages of the Afghan war. Yeah, they were there to protect it. I don't know how many casualties there were, but um, the American the Americans don't know about this. And and what do they think of it? Well, they're trying to present it as um, a tragic outcome, really, uh, especially for the women. You know, protecting the women that was that was given as one of the main pretexts. Uh, for going in there as well, and there and there were achievements. You know, women were able to go back to school and to, to establish their professions, and and so the U.S. can always point to that. But 
and that's where these um, aid programs come in. So what I call soft side counterinsurgency, win over hearts and minds. But now that's all gone. I mean, the women just recently just lost the right to go to school. Yeah. So are the oil companies still going to support Happy? It was Chevron. By the way, the, the major oil company was called Unicol, which since got bought up by Chevron. So, you know, keep your eyes on it. I mean, it just may be that for all the talk about protecting human rights, as in, for instance, Ukraine and so on, uh, <laughs> the oil companies will do whatever it takes to get yeah. control. So that, that brings up another sort of another Canadian-based question. Um, you know, my understanding here is that Canada's either third or fourth in the world in terms of proven oil reserves uh, with around 170 billion barrels. And it makes me wonder why big oil has turned its back on the conflicts and problems presented in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, and become focused on a far easier way uh, or pathway to profit here in Canada in a peaceful and stable country. Why do you suppose that is? Why, why it's turning back to Canada or why it neglected Canada? Yeah, why have the companies turned their back on Canada uh, as, a, yeah. as a simple and easy means of, of uh, extracting oil and, and you know, the uh, stable regime, politically stable, geographically stable, uh, you know, we're massive oil reserve there. Why not, you know, focus their operations on Canada? Well, yeah, it goes back to uh, priorities, as I mentioned, uh, as with Latin America. Uh, they wanted to establish their hegemony closer to the Middle East and the oil fields. Uh, because if they didn't, the Soviet would do it and would expand. And so the Cold War, a lot of the Cold War, uh, was really about protecting oil. In fact, the Truman Doctrine that was established uh, in 1947, um, which was really, you know, to fight communism, but it was really to fight the Soviets in the Middle East. And so that has prevailed. Uh, go there first because they're geographically more distant from the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. But you better get in there or the Soviets are going to get in there. And, and uh, I should say that it's not only the Middle East now. The Caspian Sea was looked upon by Cheney and, and his tribe, you know, Halliburton. He controls his multi-billion dollar oil supply company, Halliburton. The whole idea is, okay, we're going we're gonna to focus on the Caspian Sea as an alternative to the Middle East because the Middle East is just becoming too problematic. Now, now that um, you've got this... Ukraine uh, problem, and um, that also has a major oil component. Um, now that you've got that going on, uh, Biden is desperately searching for alternatives. And so I, it would seem to me that he would look to Canada. I don't know if you've been following that. I mean, how, how have the Canadians uh, responded to the oil crisis, namely the... Uh, here we go. The Nord Stream pipeline that was supposed to carry uh, Russian uh, natural gas to Germany uh, in the works for a number of years, finally completed. And then bingo, 
uh, the war, the, the, um, the Ukraine war, conflict starts. The Ukraine conflict starts. That's put on hold. Uh, the uh, European countries are uh, balking at the U.S. trying to get them to um, prevent any more Russian imports. And so that would benefit the U.S., of course. And the U.S. is benefiting uh, hugely from this. And that is the fracked gas uh, companies that uh, were developing in, in you know, previous decades and, and very desirous of, of selling their, uh, their, their oil and their gas to Europe. And um, so that's what they're doing. And, and the thing is that Europeans can't handle the terminals for the natural gas to be uploaded. So uh, anyway, that's a that's it. I would think I would think Canada that he'd be turning to Canada very soon. I mean, well, in fact, uh, even go to Venezuela, who is who is a perceived enemy. Why can't why can't the uh, the administration go to Canada? Well, let, let me let's touch base on that after we go through the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and, and along the <laughs> same along along the same vein of inquiry. You know, you mentioned Venezuela, which uh, has the largest proven oil reserve uh, around three hundred billion barrels, which is equivalent to Iran and Iraq's combined reserves. And uh, again, I would imagine for an American regime to look to control the levers of power of petroleum. You know, Venezuela is a, a short hop across the Caribbean Sea versus two oceans away to get into the Middle East. Um, yes. So I would imagine simply logistically and as well in terms of obtaining the prize that Venezuela is, is a much easier target. Now, I would imagine your answer is going to be very similar as to, as to what you've uh, suggested about Canada. My assumption here is that the military industrial complex is somewhat of the incestuous cousin of big oil and that the mentality here, the controlling elite, really amounts to something along the lines of why develop oil in the absence of war when we can double our profits with war and oil. Would that be a correct assumption, perhaps? Or too simplistic? Well, no, I think it's very perceptive. That's always on their mind. Yeah, what's the cheapest way to, to, to get a hold of the oil? And... How can we profit from it? And they're profiting famously. Uh, certainly the American oil companies are. They, I mean, they hurt during the initial stages of COVID. That was very scary when the price of oil fell to below Negative. $5. Yeah. And now it's huge. They're making billions, billions in profits. And the U.S. is actually holding hearings right now. Uh, they think that they've actually inflated uh, the cost of oil at the pump. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so I would, I would think Canada would be very much involved as well, I, but I haven't followed Canada. I'd be very, very curious to know what you've well, learned. Sure. So but again, before we get to Canada, let's, let's okay. do a, a bit more of an analysis on the Russian Ukraine conflict. And okay. but before we went to a full on hot war. Uh, I was of the assumption leading up to that, that Putin was simply saber rattling um, and looking for a means in which to create panic amongst the oil futures traders to drive up the value of oil. Because, of course, that when we were hovering around that $50, $60 mark, uh, Putin's uh, economy thrives off of oil and you know, a large portion of his foreign um, dollars coming into the country are via uh, petroleum sales, uh, probably particularly to China and, and secondarily to Europe. 
And so what better way to increase your, your profitability than to um, uh, feign a war? The, the oil futures traders drive the price up. Now I'm making double the amount of money because my oil is now selling at you know, $80, 90 $100 a barrel. I can, as long as I can continue that perceived threat, the price of oil stays high. So I'm actually surprised that he moved in and is actually engaging in, in an actual conflict. So I think there's obviously something else going on there, and I'm sure that you have some answers for us in terms of what the the um, peculiarities are of, of this situation and why we're seeing you know what could amount to becoming a, a world war conflict uh, over a country that many people didn't uh, think twice about uh, six weeks ago. Yes. Isn't it interesting? Uh, well, as, uh, I've, I've done some writing on that as well, and uh, I see it as potentially the mother of all energy wars. And, and the reason that I say that, and we'll get into Putin, but um, just because now it's involving Europe. You know, it, it, it's not European and Americans fighting proxy for wars in the Middle East. In some cases, direct wars, NATO, etc. Uh, you know, you've got Iraq, you've got Iran, Afghanistan, and Yemen. Okay, so um, what else is going on? Well, I start, I start with the Nord Stream two pipeline. That was um, a very ambitious eleven billion dollar project, and uh, the idea is that. Uh, Putin's going to sell his natural gas to Germany, and then from Germany it, it will be, you know, transferred on to Europe. And this was seen as a huge threat to the U.S. because it would have meant, if it had gone through, that Europe would be even more dependent on Russian natural gas and oil than it already was. Uh, it, it, Europe gets forty percent of its, its natural gas from, from Russia. And Putin knows, being an SKGB guy, uh, he, he knows the importance of controlling oil and gas. And, and so this is, this is all part of the great game. It's on steroids right now. Uh, just when uh, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, was completed, and it, it was ready to be certified by the Germany by Germany this summer. And there have been many efforts by the U.S. to prevent it, doing sanctions against some of the, the companies involved uh, in Nord Stream. Uh, finally, they, they failed. It was going to go through, and bingo, the war stopped that. Now, uh, could, could Putin have envisioned that um, by sending his troops into Ukraine that, that that would happen he possibly could have but he he maybe he may have calculated that whatever happens he's still going to get a lot of money coming in now they're trying to, to go after the banks there are some people who believe that um, the the war uh, was not quote unprovoked I mean at every turn I don't know how it is in Canada but in the US, most of the journalists always remind viewers that this is an unprovoked war. But there are, there are those of us who follow pipeline politics and the struggle for energy resources 
note that there has been an effort ever since the dissolution of the Soviet Union for the NATO countries to move in to these former Soviet um, republics that have oil. There's lots of oil in them. And, uh, and again, I'm talking about the Caspian Sea. And when, and when you look at the two, there was a coup in 2014 that uh, removed the pro-Russian president. And um, there were some neocons involved in that, by the way. Uh, a woman named Victoria Newland is the third highest person today in the State Department. And back in 2014, um, she had a phone conversation that was leaked about who they were going to replace him with. And she was handing out uh, candies to the demonstrators in Ukraine that supported the coup, basically. And so when Putin saw that, uh, that's when he did the move on Crimea and the eastern uh, provinces in the Donetsk region, which, by the way, uh, Donetsk it has a lot of oil, a lot of uh, Ukraine's oil and gas, never mentioned in the U.S. press. So his calculation, he stated all along, he did not want the United States or NATO to uh, impinge on his sovereign territory. And that had been part of the agreement of the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, back in 92. Uh, we won't move an inch. And of course, what's happened, NATO has. It's consist consistently moved. So when you come to his... Um, it's settling the troops on the border. That was his first warning of war. And he kept saying, I want written guarantees that NATO is not going to expand further, particularly using Ukraine. And he never got those written assurances. So um, finally, um, I think he, he, he realized that there was no point in negotiating uh, with NATO. Uh, they weren't, they weren't going to to his demands and so he he invaded and and I think he um, he did miscalculate the nature of the resistance and so he's bogged down in this war in Ukraine some of us are comparing to what happened in um, Afghanistan you know some people think a bear trap so to speak was set and he fell into it. Other people call it um, a dictator trap. Namely, uh, he, because he's a dictator, he only has yes men advising him, and they advise him poorly on this. But now there's all talk that it's going to go on for, for even years. I mean, who can say? I, I mean, this is this is insanity. At, the highest level. Uh, and I, 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 I watched a Ukrainian the other day, a Ukrainian man televised. Uh, previously, they were, they couldn't figure out what was going on. Ukrainians, what is this all about? You know, but now they're savvier because they're seeing all this manipulation going on about how you're going to get the oil and natural gas. And so there's this one guy who says, you know, this is, this is about, this is about total destruction and blood and natural resources and I'm making an appeal to humanity. This is a, a, a human humanitarian crisis on the grandest scale. And of course, we're all worried about nuclear war. Uh, and, and it's very sad to see the Ukrainian people 
um, being put through this horror. And NATO isn't doing any, I mean, it's sending in its arms, but it won't confront Russia directly because that takes us to nuclear war. So what have we come to? My hope is at, at the very same time, there's more and more pleas for search for alternative energy because we just, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna destroy the planet through climate change? Are we gonna destroy it through another world war? It's gotta stop, but saner minds are very much in the minority. It's just a totally tragic situation. Well, I'll, I'll uh, in our next segment here, I'll, I'll challenge you on your climate change uh, statements there. But before we get there, Ukraine, so number one, you know, we've had the war in Yemen go on where hundreds of thousands of civilians and, and military personnel have, have uh, met their end. Uh, and, the, you know, nobody in the West has been flying a Yemenese flag in their front yard. Uh, so again, you know, we're back to this uh, monkey see, monkey do from the uh, media propagandists influencing people's minds. And even the conflict that we witnessed in Syria over the last uh, almost decade here, Ukraine, to me, seems almost the inverse situation of Syria, where, um, you know, the West was the aggressor in trying to establish their dominance in the region, um, and Russia was backing or assisting the Syrian regime in, in maintaining their autonomy. And to me, the Ukrainian situation, you know, really is simply the inverse of what was going on there. And yet somehow um, it was okay while the West was bombing Syria, but it's not okay when uh, Russia is bombing Ukraine. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, uh, your, your analysis is very perceptive. Uh, what we hear on the media right now is that... Um, that Russia has uh, is using some of its own mercenaries and have brought them in from Syria. But the fact is, the U.S. has brought in mercenaries from Syria too. Their own proxies, you know. You don't hear that, right? Yeah, you yeah. only hear one side. So uh, yeah, now Russia is the is the aggressor. Well, it, it is. I mean, it did invade, and and so you got a problem there for the Russians for sure. Uh, then you have um, these atrocities, and, and and we're seeing the pictures of the atrocities. I I would say there's far more media cover coverage of what's happening in Ukraine than what was happening in in Syria or Yemen or Lebanon. You know, it's just for I was motivated, frankly, to write this book uh, after. I just started looking at all the devastated cities and countries uh, in the Middle East and, and saying, this can't go on. And now it's all happening in Ukraine. And, you know, they're just, some people feel that they're, they're just pawns and they're used to accomplish the final aim, which President Biden blurted out uh which is this man cannot stay in power anymore mm -hmm. you know the famous regime change uh comment which had everybody perping over themselves to retract oh no no we're not after regime change of course of course they're after regime change and putin knows this he knows they have been after him for years so it's it's nothing new to putin and by the way 
it's nothing new to a lot some of the countries that are still supporting Russia uh, as of now, as far as I can see, uh, India is holding off, uh, coming out totally condemning. And that's because they all rely, that's just one example. Serbia is another one. Um, they well, rely on the Russian gas. Let's not forget China. So between China, India, I'm sorry, China, yeah, absolutely. But, but between yeah. India and China, you know, Putin really doesn't care about the rest of us because he has massive markets. And, uh, my so I've, I've got a number of Russian friends, and you know they're very realistic about this. They're not happy that you know uh, potential fellow countrymen or or former Soviet uh, Union members are are being murdered and 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 dying, but they also see the West as being provocateurs in this situation, and uh, that I think the the West's belief that uh, regime change and the people rising up against Putin is going to be a simple thing, I think are grossly uh, misunderstood. In fact, the the is particularly now with uh, you know old man Biden there, who who I think is a a case of elder abuse at this point. Um, you know the, the the Russians laugh at him. I mean, it's like you know they they basically look this like this is who is leading you pointing to Biden. And it's like, you know, our, our man here, he's at least he can formulate a sentence. You know, he's a, he plays hockey every Saturday night. He's a fit man still. You know, we respect him. We do not respect the West. And I, I think that, you know, if, if, the, if the West's objective is regime change through this action, they are not, it's not going to happen in this manner. Yeah, well, now they're, they're putting the economic strictions, strictures in even harder. They're doing everything they can. Uh, to turn the Russian people against Putin and Russia. And, um, well, sanctions ha have proven not to work well in the past. They just get people more pissed off yes, at, at, yes. The, at those who, who are making their lives miserable, you know. And, and then you combine the fact that now Putin has total control over the media. I mean, I, was, I thought it was interesting. I didn't realize that, like, CNN... You know, a few months ago, was still able to show in Russia, uh, but now that's all blocked off. Well, you know, by blocking it off and putting out their interpretation of what this war is about, uh, I think, you know, the Russian people are going to stick with Putin. Of course, yeah. you know, some people say that, um, you know, the polls are meaningless because what are you going to do if someone calls you up and says, Hey, what do you think about Putin? Yeah, of course. <laughs> say, oh, I can't stand the guy. Uh, he's a dictator and he's a war criminal. Are they going to say that? I don't think so. So you can't rely on the polls necessarily. And um, so who knows, but such efforts, look at what's happened in the world. I mean, look, what would happen in Afghanistan? You know, the Taliban came back to power and they have long memories of sure. brutality fostered by, by uh, the Americans and, and destruction of civilian populations. The whole study came out, you know, six months before this invasion about the U.S. role, the Pentagon role in, in inflicting horrendous civilian casualties. So the Afghan people are not real friends of the United States and other countries that have been subjected to its um, ruthless policies, whether in, whether it's through uh, economic warfare or, re or military warfare. So it could be that Putin is playing the long game and thinks that 
as long as he's got China and India with him. And the U.S. is the U.S. is trying to change China. I mean, here we are, yeah, great game. Yeah, Still going on. Well, and, and again, you know, as long as this conflict goes on and the price of oil hovers around $100 a barrel, uh, as long as Putin can manage his war expenses so that they don't exceed what's coming in from the sales of petroleum to uh, China and India, he's making out like a bandit. I mean, that's just the, the, the that's the simple reality. Um, and I'll also put out, you know, when as the the European people that have been misled by the climate alarmists into believing that CO2 is somehow a toxic substance and leads to climate change. Um, they, particularly the Germans, um, who are very reliant now on, on um, Russian natural gas for their, their energy, which heats their homes and, and powers their industry, uh, there will be you know, those, as those sanctions are felt within Germany, they will have no choice but to you know, rebuke NATO's and America's sanctions in in favor of continuing their own existence. Because, you know, every month that this conflict goes on, and, you know, we're into April here, planting season in the Ukraine is upon us. If those fields aren't planted and uh, you, and, and Europe begins to feel the, um, the effects of a shortage of food, and, you know, as you mentioned, perhaps this goes on for years, this isn't going to go over well in Europe um, as people begin to starve and freeze to death. Uh, and, the, you know, the backlash will not be necessarily against Russia because, you know, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. So Europe has, the, and, and um, Germany is actually shifting now from, from the renewable green lie into, you know, why aren't we utilizing our, our clean coal and our uh, natural gas deposits domestically uh, and, you know, speaking with uh, Professor Fritz Varenholt uh, very recently, who uh, is, uh, I believe he's, he, he was one of the originators of the German Wildlife Federation. He had worked for Royal Dutch Shell's renewable energy uh, side of things. And he now has realized that much of his life's work was in vain and that, uh, you know, wind power is not the panacea for Germany that uh, was once reported and uh, that, you know, the the a lot of this rhetoric has in fact been rhetoric as opposed to meaningful uh, results. And in, in Germany in particular, now that ha they have the highest kilowatt uh, per hour, kilowatt rate per hour in the world at, at uh, just under 40 cents euro uh, per kilowatt, uh, heavy industry in Germany is failing. It's going elsewhere. And there's a new impoverished class of um, people who are who cannot afford to pay their energy bills and so there's millions of people annually now that are choosing between food or heat uh, or not even able to pay the rent and being thrown out on the street and that's coming from an economy that was once a global leader in manufacturing and uh, you know was it was the pride of the german nation uh, that's falling apart so this also then kind of moves into um, uh, an experience that we had here in canada and um, one of my previous guests, Dr. Tammy Nemeth, has produced two very lengthy reports uh, covering the foreign influence in the cancelling of the Canadian petroleum sector at the hands of the global uh, climate alarmists. Um, the government of Alberta actually produced a report called the Allen Inquiry, where they utilized, uh, I think, Deloitte and Touche to uh, monitor these funding uh, agencies and where the money was going and names such as George Soros and the Rockefellers were identified amongst others, including the organizations that they back and support and fund. 
And so when I look at all this, and then we throw in, you know, Zbigniew uh, uh, Brzezinski and the rest of the technocrats and their support of the CCP, which the CCP is really a technocratic movement. Uh, you know, it's no longer just a communist regime. It's, it's being backed by the uh, Trilateral Commission and Council on Foreign Relations. You have to ask yourself, who ultimately benefits from these renewable power sources such as wind and solar that have absolutely no ability to power our modern economies in the same way that fossil fuels or nuclear energy does? Who is the ultimate benefactor of these policies? And the answer is clear. It's China. China has the, the greatest control over these renewable energy sources. So are we through these globalist controllers and these the global elite, are we witnessing a power shift from the West to China? And, um, you know, as part of what they're calling the Great Reset and Agenda 2030, um, where, you know, the average person will own nothing and be happy and freeze to death and starve to death, um, you know, are we, you know, where are we here? And obviously the, the great game of oil has been a bloody mess. Um, but again, you know, when we look at a country like Canada that has the third or fourth largest petroleum reserve and it's sitting in the ground, and yet we have all these conflicts, you know, to me, this just doesn't add up in terms of a simplistic equation. There's something else. There's another agenda going on here. Well, there's always another agenda going on, frankly, um, and, and, and we're not told about it and we have to dig. So um, I'd be very interested in seeing those. I, I don't know if you could send me uh, the links to those interviews. I, I, I find it very interesting. I've, I've been uh, contacted by a person uh, who told me that the uh, Rockefeller Foundation actually um, was was concerned um, that wait let me get it right that nuclear power uh, was going to overtake oil as a major energy source and so it funded uh, scare stories about uh, nuclear power and its dangers. Um, I'm not I I. I I'm not as well versed um, in uh, what you call the uh, the well, you call it what the climate alarmists. Now, um, I don't know. I, up till now, uh, I see a, a a serious problem for the climate. I mean, we've got so many natural disasters going on. I believe they're climate they're climate caused, uh, and they're what I see going on right now is fervent pleas to look more deeply at um, the impact of fossil fuels on climate. I see that going on. But at the same time, I see uh, nuclear energy uh, people um, saying we're the answer. Uh, we've developed a more modern technology and, we're, and, and so people should be looking at that. Um, and then there are also greater demands now to exploit more of the domestic uh, oil and gas because that had been curbed, as you know, by Biden. Uh, and, and so now you're telling me that something similar is going on in Canada. So I, I have to I have to uh, educate myself more on that and would appreciate any links you can give me. Um, Certainly. Certainly. I mean, so I've been in contact with all of the, the greatest uh, climate physicists on the planet, um, and they are a very, very pragmatic group. 
Um, CO2 has never and will never cause climate change. Um, when you look at long historic trends, CO2 levels actually lag behind temperature. And this is very well documented. The, the IPCC uh, policy papers for politicians is an abridged version of the real scientific papers that are presented. And much of the evidence is bastardized. And um, over the 80 some odd climate models that have been produced since the 70s, not a single one of them has been accurate. And so when you do the statistical analysis of the probability of those all 80 being absolutely incorrect, um, the probability that they are simply incorrect is, is something like one in, in, in four trillion. So there's obviously another agenda here. Um, the, there is definitely an argument to be made, and, and Honolulu is probably one of the greatest examples of this, where in the 1970s, the average temperature in Honolulu was in the high 20s. And as the concrete jungle and the albedo effect uh, of, of the increased amount of pavement and, and, and buildings, we now are into the low 30s in terms of an average temperature. And these are heat islands. Um, the, the obviously, being in a temperate part of the world, you know, if, if, you, if you live in the Middle East, the passings of the seasons are not as distinct as where you where you or I live presently. And so if we can imagine that the simply the angle of the sun alternates. So, you know, in, in Massachusetts, I'm sure you have, you know, zero degree days through the wintertime and you might be a high of 80 or 90 degrees during the summertime. And so that massive shift in temperature is simply caused by a, an angular change in the incident rays that the sun hits the planet. In the same way, up until very recently, uh, astro or solar physicists assumed that the sun was constant, which has now proved been disproven. So the sun's energy is so immense that even a fractional percentage difference in the sun's output has a massive effect on, on what's happening to the planet. And historically, when we look back, um, historians, anthropologists, etc., refer to periods in our past that were warmer, uh, such as the Roman warming period or the medieval warming period as climate optimas, where, uh, you know, of course, Hannibal crossed the Alps, uh, there were no glaciers. We cannot do that today. So the fact that glaciers are receding is actually an effect that we've been experiencing for the past 10,000 years as the ice age has abated. And uh, in fact, towards the end of the last ice age, when we approached about 180 parts per million of CO2, uh, at 160 parts per million, photosynthesis ceases to exist. So we, we nearly lost uh, the, the engine of the planet during that period. And what we're going to see here moving forward as the, the climate alarmists continue to try and keep oil and gas in the ground, the CO2 levels will continue to move up. Uh, but we have now entered into a grand solar minimum period. The temperatures are going to be going down. And so it's going to become a very difficult argument to sustain as the CO2 level continues to rise and temperatures go down. So it's going to be very interesting to see what their uh, new propaganda around that situation is, uh, which if you uh, uh, pay any attention to Forbes magazine, the, uh, the great scientific um, journal that it is, uh, they've now come up with a preposterous statement that uh, global warming is, calling, is causing global cooling, which of course is preposterous, but it, uh, you know, again, it's part of that narrative. Um, interesting to note as well, of course, is the, the Paris Climate Accord that uh, President Trump removed the United States uh, from, which allows China, Russia, and India to continue doing whatever they want to do, which, of course, they are the most polluting countries of the world. Um, 
Uh, and today, you know, China commissions a, a 800 to 1,000 megawatt coal-fired plant about every week. Um, they consume about 50% of the global coal consumption and about 60% of their domestic power is generated from coal. So if, if this, if, if China is forcing renewable energy on the rest of us yet continuing uh, their own coal production, uh, including the building of a $2 billion, uh, 100 million ton per year elevated railway known as the Hajoy Railway, one has to ask the question as to why, uh, why that's the case. Um, as you know, with all these conflicts and all these these strange occurrences that we see around us, you know, if you're not asking the why and looking deeper under the surface, uh, you're really not getting the answers. Well, you definitely you definitely have to ask why, for sure. And uh, we, the people, are sort of the last to know, uh, and and so it behooves us to try to find um, the truth. Which is getting harder and harder. That's that's the thing. You know, who who do you believe? Um, now, I have not um, weighed in as deeply as you have on um, climate alarmism, and so I would welcome you sending more information about that. Um, I'd be, I'd be happy to I'm happy to make all the introductions that I can possibly do, and and maybe there's a, a book in the works there, uh, another oh. investigative piece. I'd be happy to assist you on that and and uh, pump out some more truth. Oh man, I mean you're you're very much on top of it. I would like to know what motivates you. I, I feel like interviewing you. If you're so on top of this, how did that all happen? I'm kind of curious. Uh, so, so in a nutshell, um, I was a, uh, a globetrotter uh, from about 2017 until March of 20, uh, setting up a, a variety of cannabis projects globally, uh, and that came to a dramatic and, and uh, nearly immediate halt with uh, COVID. And um, I'd had a, uh, I'd always been up on these type of uh, controversial subjects, um, you know, the, the Trilateral Commission and the technocratic movement and, you know, why things were happening the way they were. And uh, I'd been meaning to put together a podcast since 2010 or 2011. And so the, the, the forced um, confinement at home kind of brought out this subject. And uh, the, more, the more I dug into the questions that I was interested in, um, you know, in terms of the, the why questions, uh, this podcast began more around conservation issues in British Columbia, uh, particularly around the Site C Dam, which is probably going to cost about $15 billion, uh, which was being produced under the guise of electrifying the oil and gas industry in British Columbia for the export of natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas to China um, to save CO2 emissions so they're not burning as much coal, which of course is all complete nonsense. The upside to the, to the province of BC is exactly zero. And um, so that, that's where it began. And then um, as I dug more into these subjects and I guess got a bit more credibility with the show, I was able to speak with uh, uh, folks like uh, Professor Richard Lindzen, Professor Willie Soon, Christopher Essex, uh, all the real uh, physics uh, masterminds that are really studying what's going on, and um, and then went out laterally speaking with uh, folks like Dr. Tammy Namith, um, folks like yourself, people that really took these deep dives on on a variety of subjects. And um, you know, I guess I'm I'm somebody who's uh, very inquisitive and curious, and and uh, I'm not I'm not happy with uh, seeing a poorly constructed uh, weapons of mass destruction 3D animation on a TV screen and accepting that as as reality, and so always. Digging deeper for the why, 
And, um, and through those questions of why um, being able to meet some very interesting and intelligent people uh, like yourself and having great conversations and trying to uh, spread the truth amongst uh, those who are willing to listen, uh, just op open some eyeballs and some brains as to what's really going on. And, uh, you know, with the hope of uh, through that educational process, uh, creating a better world. Wow. So interesting. Well, um, I'll, you'll have to uh, show me uh, your website or you have a website to your podcast. I, I sure do. I'll, I'll uh, yeah. Once once we conclude here today, I'll, I'll give you a uh, I'll, I'll send you the the um, the Nemeth interviews, uh, and in the show notes of those, I have the uh, the reports that you can dig through. I mean, there are hundred and something page reports, highly detailed, very similar uh, written to your book. Tons of footnotes, all very well researched. I think you'll find that fascinating because that's you know dealing with the oil and gas sector uh, specifically, uh, and then I'll also include um, the climate links and. Uh, and you can do your own. I'm sure you'll dive into the lateral research there and see some of the um, uh, some of the publications, some of the YouTube videos. Uh, one of my most recent guests, uh, Professor Ian Plimmer, uh, he's a geologist out of uh, Australia, and uh, he's a very um, outspoken critic of uh, the climate alarmists. He's just produced a book uh, called Green Murder. Uh, which is uh, dealing with the, you know, and Australia and their, their woke mentality is really suffering from renewable energy right now, um, or the, the, the shortfalls of renewable energy, very high prices, intermittent service. And of course, you know, Australia has a tremendous oil and gas, um, as well as uranium reserves. And so they're wasting their time putting money into China's pockets instead of uh, helping their own citizens uh, and lowering the cost of uh, of their existence. So th that would be another uh, excellent uh, book to consume. Uh, uh, Professor Plummer is a very intelligent man and and uh, well, uh, is a great author to read. Wow, I got my work cut out for me. I, I <laughs> you, mean, do. you do. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I I feel I feel so overwhelmed. I mean, I get I get the New York Times every day, right? I can barely go through those, and then then when I start writing, of course, then thank God for the for the web. Frankly, that you can you can find other sources. You know, not, just don't go with the traditional ones. And um, but in a way, in a way, I I think this is the questioning and the whys. This is all a very good development for us. I would like to think we're coming out of this period. Uh, with what I would call a new renaissance. You know, I hope I so. My, I really hope I, so. I, I, I got my master's degree in Florence, Italy, and uh, the capital of the renaissance, and I wrote my master's thesis on uh, Cosimo de' Medici and actually how he used art and architecture to, um, to uh, power his regime. But um, in the process, I studied the renaissance a lot. And one of the things I learned was that um, the Black Death had a huge impact on the the people of Italy and Europe, but Italy in particular, uh, and to the point that they uh, they required that all uh, boats had to stay offshore for forty days, mm -hmm. and that's quaranta in Italian where quarantine, the term quarantine comes from. And then further investigated, I learned that what came out of that horrific period 
where the poverty and the suffering was exposed uh, and the rule of the church exposed came the Renaissance, a, science, a more science-oriented, secular look at the society that they were living in. Uh, and it caused a great birth of, of uh, creativity. I would like to think that's what we're gonna come out of this horrendous period that we've gone through. Uh, you know, first COVID, now the war in Ukraine, Afghanistan. I mean, it's all in such turmoil, but I think people are um, saying enough already. I mean, we're coming to the brink of nuclear war. Come on, this has got to well, stop. Hopefully we look back at yeah, hopefully we look back at this era and label it as the period of propaganda and, and uh, some form of great awakening occurs. But uh, before we get there, I would also throw out uh, this question to you, which is, uh, do you know what one of the fundamental shifts were that brought about the Renaissance? One of the fundamental shifts that brought about the Renaissance. Uh, tell me what you think it is. Well, it's 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 fairly well. Uh, so the 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 dark ages were not only dark in the political sense, they, it was also one of the periods of a grand solar minimum. And so one of the causes, one of the, the major causes of the black death in terms of why 30% of the people succumbed to that is after several generations of uh, cold times and crop failures and a, a general decline in the human health and immune systems, uh, that largely accounted for the the massive impact that um, the Black Death had. And if we look at the climate data as we moved into the Renaissance period, we were actually moving into a warming trend, which allowed the crops to be grown uh, higher up the mountainsides. There were more abundant crops. And so people's uh, not only immunity, their, their overall health, but also their, their brain power increased because they were you know, more well-fed from infancy. And uh, now instead of a daily struggle to just be able to get by, there was a surplus, uh, which then also led to the, uh, the great cathedral buildings within Europe. And it was an expansion of, of scientific thought and, and thought in general, because people had excess time on their hands, uh, other than just simply dedicated to eking out an animalistic uh, existence. And so these, these fundamental, uh, you know, which of course was, a, was a, a massive and dramatic shift in advancement in humanity. And so when the climate alarmists are bleating about, uh, you know, the fact that uh, CO2 levels are going to cause the planet to burn, they fail to realize that if we look back at what happened as the planet warmed in the Renaissance, we went through a great awakening because of the, the ability of humans to survive. Now, uh, if this grand solar minimum is something like the Monder minimum, which we're, we're presently uh, approaching and will peak around 2050, uh, you know, we may have some serious problems ahead of us. Wow. So you're, you're asking why has gone even deeper. And, uh, and I, I find that interesting because when I was studying our history, you know, um, my gravitation, and I have no way of explaining it, was to analyze it politically, the power of the Medici. That interested me a lot and, and how they how they use art to advance their power. But I didn't have any of this kind of background. So um, yeah, that, that's worth looking at as well. And uh, you know, a great awakening would be a wonderful thing um, if we survive. Yes, yes. That's the, 
that's the big question for me. So absolutely. Anyway, should we end well, on that or do you still have more? No, that's great. I think um, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've enjoyed it tremendously and I uh, would recommend uh, all the listeners to uh, uh, buy your book and, and uh, read it. It's an entertaining read uh, as well as being highly informative. Uh, so I thank you for your, your work on that. Uh, and I look forward to uh, getting your uh, thousand page volume on uh, Rockefeller and, and Latin America, which I'll uh, be perusing over the next uh, few weeks as well. Well, well, listen, let me let me let me just add another comment. When when you said you were you were curious and that's why you did these deep, deep dives, you know, in my book, I describe how the CIA sent three people to basically check me out and my husband uh, in order uh, before my father was going to be honored at Langley. Um, that's an aspect of the book that comes out. They finally realized that they had to honor him as the CIA's first fallen star. And uh, they have a wall in, in the entry of Langley that shows all, all the CIA people who have uh, fallen uh, in the line of duty. Now, the thing is that my father's name wasn't there because he died before the CIA was created. But they concluded that he had similar training and that he really should uh, be honored for his work. Um, and and uh, because because he was he was more than the usual. I mean, he he spoke Arabic. He was a scholar on the region. Uh, he loved the region. All of that made him, uh, on reflection, a desirable person um, to be employed by the agency. But the, the thing is, in in the process of sort of checking me out. Uh, one, one of them, who was a psychologist, came and, and talked to me. He, I, he wouldn't give his name. Um, but at one point he said, you know, I wonder why you never joined the agency. And, <laughs> and, and I said, well, uh, why do you say that? And he said, well, you're curious mm-hmm. and you're not afraid, which I take as a compliment. Uh, but my path went to journalism where where i'm more comfortable yeah, okay. fantastic. Um, fantastic but but anyway so uh, that's a another little comment about being curious but being curious is very important yes and people yes. Uh, i i would really encourage people to dig and dig and dig and use a variety of sources to try it is hard but you can you can there is an objective reality there and if you search hard enough you can get to it and one of my main tools is chronologies timelines they've been extremely useful because then you get a better historical context of how things happen and then you begin to understand better uh what the omissions the sins of omissions are in the official histories and you can finally get to what's called a close approximation of the truth. By the way, I just wanted to throw out one other thing. Apparently, Michael Moore has done a documentary which uh, critiques the uh, the Green Movement. Um, have you seen that? I have not. I have not, no. And I guess if we're, if we're, if we're throwing out uh, pieces that people should have a look at, uh, Oliver Stone's done a lot of work on Ukraine uh, and taking a deep dive into the situation. So I'd also recommend uh, listeners uh, okay. 
look at some of his stuff. And, and Oliver Stone's uh, a bit of an outlier. I mean, he's certainly not a an ascriber to the mainstream narrative. And so, again, another, yet another source to to look at as opposed to the, the, the gibberish coming out of CNN on a 24-hour yeah. basis. Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, so in closing then, uh, Ms. Dennett, how can listeners learn more about you and your work? Where would I direct them? Uh, well, first of all, I, I'm developing a, a, a website. It's still in progress, but it's up because I felt right. I had to get some stuff up there, but it's called followthepipelines.com. And okay. so, um, and I would love some input from Canadians who have had to deal with pipeline politics, uh, tar sands, and, and, and all of that. I mean, we didn't even touch on that. But um, I'll put I, you in I, touch with uh, Dr. Tammy Nemeth, and you two will talk for hours, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So so that's the best place. Uh, I have a, a general website, charlottedennett.com, and that just that's part my legal work. I'm a lawyer, and part all of my writings are listed up there. Uh, and uh, I don't mind people contacting me by email. They okay. can contact. I my interest is is in exchanging information and getting to the truth. So true journalism. What a concept! Real <laughs> journalism. Good for you. All right, Ab, thank, thank you so much for your time. I, an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'll make those introductions for you, and, and please keep in touch. Um, thank you. Thank like, you. Uh, uh, once I get through the Rockefeller book, uh, I might uh, look to uh, chat with you on that one again. It's, it's been a fascinating yeah, conversation. So. A lot of people are looking at that now, the Rockefeller. Sure they are. And you, and you it's think it's the concept of the elites. That's the whole point. you got to go to the top of the mountain and yes. understand yeah. what's going on underneath. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you you keep yourself safe because you're uh, knocking on doors that uh, you know sometimes people wind up with problems. Yeah, I know, but I'm older now. You know, when when you get to be my age, you sort of you sort of think like, I've had a full life, and I'm going to say what I what I need to say. No, good not, for you. I'm not going to be afraid. Okay. Good for you. Good for you. Right. Well, your your father's so your father's looking down with great uh, great appreciation of the work you're doing. I'm sure he's proud of you. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day, ma'am. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.